Good morning. The point of this weekend is to, uh, to understand that God has given a unique call to men to walk in his authority, to bring his love and grace into the world. And that authority isn't about lording over. It's not about being better than anybody else. It's coming as a servant to really establish uh, his love and his kingdom rule on earth. And that what undermines that is our anxiety. And so that's what we focused on yesterday. We're going to look at the solution uh, this morning. But I want to begin by, if you don't mind, giving you a, a little bit of psychology. My first love, I have my master's degree is in theology. I love theology. Anything that uh, doesn't come from the Bible, I always hold in, uh, in suspicion. But there's, uh, uh, um, it's called family systems theory. That's a, a psychological theory that I find to be very helpful. I find it integrates well with biblical thought. And I want to share this with you and then take that, what I'm going to talk about now and yesterday, and kind of bring it all together at the end. So what, um, what family systems theory is, is it's a way of thinking about relationships. Now, if you went to family counseling um, 30 or 40 years ago, the way that it would work is the uh, psychologist would bring in the whole family, and then he would uh, say something that sounded very professional and profound, like, how can I help you today? And, you know, what's the issues? And, and uh, what the family would do is they would do this. They would go, he's the issue. And then they would be the black sheep of the family. You know that phrase, the black sheep? Somebody who's, you know, that's the problem child. And the, our family would be doing fine if it wasn't for this problem child. And so, basically, the rest of the family could leave the psychologist would try to fix the problem child and then reinsert that child back into the family, and supposedly the family would be functioning fine after that. But what they discovered was that the problem child, what they call in psychology is the IP, the identified problem, that the IP was actually a symptom of a poor family dynamic. And that... Uh, what needed to happen was as the family was functioning in a healthier way, this problem child no longer needed to act out anymore. That all the problem child really was, was a symptom, or, you know, as we talked about yesterday, a, a dashboard that there's something dysfunctional going on in the family. In fact, they found that the IP was often the strongest person in the family who wasn't willing to just kind of buy into the dysfunctional family system, was actually willing to pull the alarm and say, hello here, something's wrong, and I'm not going to play this game anymore. So what they then discovered is something the Bible has taught for years and years, and that is that we are the result of our relationships. This phrase that you may have heard that no man is an island is a, is a true statement, that who you and I are is the result of the relationships that we've been around. Now, I'll just jump ahead and just say quickly, that's why we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when we're around him, then we are shaped by who he is, and it dramatically shapes who we are, right? But uh, it's helpful to know 
that there is no such thing as a static you. There's, you know, people are trying to get in touch with themselves. You ever seen that? In, Van in Vancouver, everybody backs packs in Europe to find themselves. I don't know why they're doing that. They all go to Europe. And uh, we're trying to find ourselves. And this, there's this idea that, that somewhere there's this person called me. And what psychology is actually discovering is that we're always living in reaction to the world around us. So have you noticed sometimes that the person you are at home is a different person than you are at church, which is a different person than you are at work? You know, why is that? Well, it's because we're always living in reaction. So we're these super nice people at work and just productive and, yo, how's it going? And then we get home and when we're angry and withdrawn and we go, what's that? Well, the pressures, the anxiety that we have at home changes us. Those, those relationships change us. And so we need to figure out then, how do we, how do we get out of this? Um, I remember, uh, it's maybe a silly example, but it works for me. I remember being in grade eight. You don't call it grade eight. What do you call it? Oh, I thought there was something more profound. Don't, oh, it starts in ninth grade. You become something else. What is it? Freshman. And yeah, I never can get that straight. Junior sounds like it should be first, but it's not first. It just throws me all off. All right. So when I'm in, uh, I'm in eighth grade, I'm being culturally relevant. Is that how you said it? Eighth grade? Um, I had a, a math teacher, his name was Mr. Pope, and I remember the first day I come into math, and I hate math, and I come into math, and he says, math is fun, and then we all burst out laughing, and he didn't laugh. I thought, this is strange, you didn't understand your own joke. And he says, no, he says, math is fun. And for the rest of the year, I believed him, and math was my favorite subject, Never happened before. It hasn't happened since. But for that year, math was my favorite subject. And I lived in reaction to him. And math was fun. Grade nine was Mr. Gregory. I hated him. He hated me. We had a mutual thing going on. And uh, he was my math teacher. And uh, in grade eight, I got an A in math. Guess what I got in grade nine? Well, a C minus, because I, I never wanted to go back. So I had to at least get a C minus. I hated math. Uh, same subject matter, but I am reacting off of a different person. So let me, uh, let me try to explain this. Can I just, uh, would you mind putting up your hand just for a moment? All right. Okay. Uh, what are you doing right now? I'm pushing against your hand. Did I tell you to push against my hand? No. No, but you're pushing. Why are you pushing? Um, <laughs> just, I don't know. Because <laughs> I'm pushing. Yeah. I'm pushing, and so you're giving me an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, everybody does that. Everybody pushes. The idea is, is that we are always living in a reaction to others. And when people push, we push. I pushed, David, you pushed back. Everybody does, I did. When somebody did that to me, it really bugged me that I got sucked in. But uh, everybody, everybody pushes. We are always, I'm in the notes now, we're always living in reaction 
to others, and people are always living in reaction to us. Now let's tie this into anxiety. Our over and under functioning produces an equal and opposite reaction in others. Let me say that again. This is a, a big deal. Our over or under functioning produces an equal and opposite reaction in others. So remember uh, yesterday, my wife, way more anxious than I am. <laughs> it's not true. But she, uh, she over-functions all the time. She's just an over-functioner. And so I tell her I'm going to fix her because I have this prophetic insight into who she is and how she should change. And so I, you know, I say, you know, honey, just chill. And remember, I always said, just be more like me. Look how chill I am. And I'm the paragon of godliness. And so you should be, you should be more like me. And then, uh, but here's what I didn't get. Her over-functioning was the result of my under-functioning. Now, this will change your life if you grab hold of this. The way that you change others is by being a different person for them to react against. If you don't fix others, you become a different person for them to press against. And so as I step up my game in home and engage with my family, my wife's anxiety goes down and she's not overfunctioning anymore. I didn't fix her at all, but I became a different person for her to react against. Are you following me on this? This is profound. It's profound. The way that we as men change other people is by being a different person for them to react against than what they typically experience. Let's keep unpacking this. The idea then, this is a shocking thought, is that we often create our enemies. We create our enemies. <clears throat> I remember, uh, remember uh, uh, somebody telling me a long time ago, they says, Greg, do you know how you, uh, you get people to like you? I go, I'm into this, tell me how. And he says, the way that you get people to like you is you like them first. And when you like them, then they just automatically like you. So, uh, you know, they go, yeah, I just really like that guy. I don't know what it is. Oh, I get it. They like me. <laughs> and so I just like them. And so I can actually control. I know this sounds weird, and I'm not playing some mind game with you. But I can control who likes me by liking them. And if I don't like you, I come in with a posture. It's called anxiety. I come in with a posture of defensiveness. I'm not going to let you hurt me. I never did like you, and I won't ever. And I come in with that. And even though I may say really nice words, and wherever it goes, there's a, there's right away, there's one of these. I'm pressing, and you're going to resist. But if I come in with humility, I come in with vulnerability, and I decide that I'm going to love you as Jesus loves me, I'm a different person for you to react against, and we can have ourselves a friendship. 
we don't affect others by changing others. We affect others by changing ourselves. Christ changing us, of course, but I'm just speaking in abbreviated language. As we change ourselves, we become a different person and we engage differently. Let me give you an example of this. My, uh, my sport that I just absolutely love is uh, mountain biking. I just love mountain biking. And people come from all over the world to mountain bike in Vancouver. It's it's well known, it's one of the meccas that you, it's on a bucket list if you're a mountain biker. Everybody knows about Vancouver and our North Shore. And I bike there all the time. And it's really, really fun. It's really, really technical riding. You go very, very slow, but it's super steep. So if I'm going down a hill, the bike seat is on my chest and my butt is rubbing on the back tire. Like it's really, really steep. And I just find that incredibly amusing. And, uh, and I go with my boys, and uh, we have lots of fun talking up the hill, and then we have lots of adrenaline going down the hill. It's really, really great. So I'm out. I usually don't like riding alone because it's dangerous, but I, this time I just want to go for a ride. And so a young guy pulls up beside me, and I say, you know, who are you? And he goes, I'm from Australia, but I moved to Vancouver to just go mountain biking. And I go, well, you must be a nice guy. And ask him what he does, and he says he's in the film industry. They call Vancouver Hollywood North because they have a good tax break and a poor dollar. <laughs> Some people come to shoot movies there. And, uh, and then, of course, he's polite, and so he asked me, what, what do I do? And I go, well, I'm a pastor. And I go, uh, so tell me, what's your experience of, of church and Christianity? And he says, you don't want to get me started. But I did. And so he goes on. We're pedaling up a hill for about half an hour, and he goes on telling me, everything that's wrong with the church and with the world, it's because of Christians. I don't know if you know this, but it's uh, the reason why there's AIDS in Africa is because of the church. And he just went on, it's all our fault. And he just goes on and on talking about everything wrong in the church and how Christianity has screwed up the world. He just goes on and on and on about it. And so what he's doing is he's pressing. He's, he's pushing, right? He's pushing. Now, what I can do in that moment is I can push back. And I can say, Christians are super good people, too. And we do really good stuff, too. And I met a good Christian once, and we're really good people, and I can push. And if I push, what is he going to do? He's going to push back. So again, I've taken my course, so I know what to do. So, uh, so in that moment, I say, uh, I, he, so he goes, he goes on. He goes, sorry, man, I just went off there for a while. And I go, well, to be honest with you, you don't know the half of it. I go, we are way more screwed up than you could ever imagine. And then I go off in the church for five or ten minutes. And I go, man, I'm in this stupid thing. And we're way more messed up. Like, you have no idea. And the people who have hurt me most in my life have been Christians, not non-Christians. So I am totally tracking with you. And I just stopped talking. Now listen to what he says after that. He says, well, to be honest with you, Christians are also the best people that I've ever met. Now, would he have ever said that if I pushed? He would never have said that. So if he, uh, if he pushes and I don't resist, where is he now? We're closer. But if I resist, I have distance. If I walk in the humility of Christ, I now have a new friend. 
I'm not trying to do some uh, positive confession thing, but you and I have the power to create enemies or to lead people into right relationship with God and others. We have the ability to do that. And the difference between resistance and non-resistance is understanding how to manage our anxiety. When you over-function, get angry, control, blame, judge, when you get angry, you create under-functioning in all the people around you. One of the things that I've had to learn as a leader is I burnt myself out numerous times because I've been doing this for a while. And I go, oh, I'm over-functioning. And everybody else's game rises up. And now they're all functioning, super happy, doing what God has called them to do because I'm not overcompensating for them anymore out of my own pride and insecurity. And so the only way that you can get the people around you to step up their game is to underfunction. And the only way that you're going to get people who are overfunctioning around you to chill is to actually engage in moments and not walk in insecurity and withdrawal. Because what we need to understand is everybody is always reacting against us. You know, I feel it when I walk in this room yesterday, you're all looking at me. I hate that. And, uh, and you're all trying to figure me out. You're trying to understand whether, figure out whether I'm safe or not. And I tell some stupid story about being tickled, and you go, great. You know, some of you are in the army, and I'm talking about being tickled. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if I can <laughs> listen to this guy. <laughs> and uh, but you're figuring me out. That's fine. I get that. <clears throat> but we're always living in reaction to one another. And if we know that that's true, then the next thing becomes true, that we can change our relationships by being a different person to react against. Is this making sense to you? So how then do we become a different person for people to react against? We fight over, this is a, this is a statement that helps us understand what's going on. Uh, when we're in disagreement with people, when there's tension with other people, what we're doing is we're fighting over what we feel about an issue, what it symbolizes, and not the issue itself. The problem is seldom the problem. Our anxious reaction is the problem. Now, I don't know if you know this about me. I don't think you do, but I am an expert, especially in the first year of my marriage, I'm an expert in Christmas lights. It's just one of the anointings that God's put on me. And uh, I know, and my wife didn't at this point in time, but I know the best kind of lights to have on Christmas trees. I just know that. It just came to me by divine revelation. And the, and the kind of uh, Christmas lights that are best are the ones that are about this big. They're strong, manly lights. And these are the kind of lights that should go on Christmas trees. And my wife didn't understand my revelation. She believed that the best lights are these stupid, puny, <laughs> feminine or something, you know, these little LED lights. What's that about? And so we would, uh, we argued, isn't this embarrassing? We argued in our first year of marriage, our first special Christmas together, <laughs> as to what lights we were going to dress our first Christmas tree with. And I'm fighting for the big, now I know they're super ugly, I get that now. But back then, I believed that they were the right lights. And she's crying because we're not doing, you know, the... And are we fighting over Christmas lights? No, we're not fighting over Christmas lights. <clears throat> what we're fighting over 
is, uh, guess what kind of lights my family had growing up? The big ones. And I didn't want to, I didn't, uh, I grew up in a, in a single parent home. I told you yesterday that my father died when I was a teenager. So I'm super and unhealthily loyal to my mother because I just hated what she went through. She had to, my father was sick with multiple sclerosis for about, about 10 years. And I remember her, we had a family business and then she'd run to the hospital to care for my father. And because we're such an insensitive family, she didn't have to cook for us when she came back home. It was horrible. So I feel super guilty about that and I overfunctioned. And I didn't want to betray my family. And so I fight for things. But I'm anxious. It's my anxiety. The issue is never the issue. It's the anxiety behind it that creates the problems and tensions. And so as soon as I, I verbalized what was really going on, I go, well, that was stupid. Yeah, you're right, these look way better, and then we can get on with life. So uh, the problem is seldom the problem. Uh, you might be worried that your kids are gonna do drugs, or they're gonna have sex uh, outside of marriage, or that they're not gonna do well at school. That's never the problem. It's never the problem. Uh, your anxiety about that is the problem. And as soon as you push, no child of mine is going to do drugs. No child of mine is going to. As soon as you push, now you're going to create an equal and opposite reaction. Um, I'll tell you how I counsel people who struggle with lust. Uh, I remember this one guy coming in. He says, uh, Greg, and he's a godly guy and just... Uh, on the mission field, just a really, really outstanding person. He says, I really struggle with pornography and masturbation. And so he's coming to see a pastor, you know. And uh, so uh, he tells me about his problem. And I say, uh, could, you just, uh, could you just answer one question for me? I go, do you like it? And he's talking with the pastor. So right away, he puts down his head. He goes, Oh, no, Pastor Greg. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't like it at all. <laughs> I go, really? Just could you do me a favor? Could you just look me in the eye just for a minute? Just for a minute. Can you just please tell me what you love about pornography? And then his eyes lights up. And he goes, it's amazing. <laughs> he goes, it's the only time in my life when I feel alive. It's exciting, it's freedom for me. In every other area of my life, I have to be good. And this is the one area of my life where I can be alone and I can be free. Oh, thank you. So he comes in, he comes in with a problem. And I can go, you're right, you do have a problem, you better fix that. Or I can go, tell me about that problem. And I have that same experience. And now we're closer and we can figure it out together. But if I'm going, you know it's a sin, right? You know that, right? You know what the Bible says about that, right? You know you got to get right with God. You know that. Have you confessed the word? Have you confessed the word? Let's confess the word right now. <laughs> and I, you're just pushing. And I remember uh, when I was struggling with it as a teenager, I went to see my pastor told him that I was struggling. He goes, well, let's confess that. So we got down on our knees. I confessed my sin. 
And then he says, what I want you to do, it's in those churches where the pastor shakes people's hands as they leave the church, you know. He says, what I want you to do is whenever you leave the church, I want you to give me one of these or one of these in terms of how you're doing. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm a teenager going, really? So every week. <laughs> every week, doing great. I mean, you're an idiot. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to be real. There's no way I'm going to tell you going out the church what are you thinking? But you know what he is? He's anxious. He doesn't believe that he knows how to bring the presence of God into this area of my life. And so he did one of these to me. And he just gave me a rule and basically told me to work it out on my own because he's anxious. He doesn't want to me any of that. <clears throat> so uh, lust is not a problem. If you try to fix lust, you won't get over it. It's your anxiety about something that is the real problem. For me, uh, lust uh, in my, I'm, I'm a very religious person. I, uh, I grew up in a non-Christian home, but I think I touched a cigarette once. I mean, I've just never done anything wrong. It just doesn't interest me. I don't feel rebellious. And for me, lust was the one place where I was free. I didn't have to think all the time. I could just let loose and enjoy something. And I was afraid that if I gave God full control over my life, I would have a hell of a life full of rules and obligation and work. I like work, but I needed a, f a place of freedom. And so I had to believe a new thing about Jesus. And when I discovered him, not just to be good, but kind and generous and enjoyable and freeing, I don't need to go to lust anymore because I found him. But the harder I, fix, I fixated on fixing lust, the more difficult it became. Is this making any sense to you? <clears throat> So, back to, uh, back to relational problems. So, my lust problem was a relational problem. I am super convinced. By doing this, I've been testing it now for about 25 years. I'm convinced that we have no personal problems. We only have relational problems. I'm really convinced about this. I don't think that lust is a personal issue. I think it's a relational issue, primarily between God and I. I don't think that anger is a personal issue. It's a relational issue. I don't know what to do when someone disagrees with me. And so I must control because I'm anxious. I don't know what to do when I feel burdened by law. I get anxious and so I rebel in lust. It's a relational problem. I don't know how to manage the expectations of God. I've read the Bible and there's a good long list of all the things that we should do. How do I come close to a God like that? and trust him with my heart. I don't know that I can do that. So I'll give you my duty. I'm more than happy to do that. But when I want life and relief, I'm gonna go somewhere else because I can't trust you with that part of my life. So I think that our problems are relational. And the way that we improve our lives is to improve our relationships as opposed to fixing our problems. This is a radical departure, I think, from the way that things are normally taught but I, I really believe in this, you guys. 
So, so how then do we fix our relational problems? And here's the big, you know, there was a drum roll. This is the moment for it. Men are to be the non-anxious presence in any given moment. Men are to be the non-anxious presence in any given moment. I'll tell you a story about this. Uh, my daughter went from grade seven into grade eight. That's when you go into high school. And uh, she uh, would come home from school really nasty. And uh, my wife, Debbie, would, you know, she'd come in. Debbie would say, hey, uh, Jessica's my daughter's name. So great to see you, Jess. Uh, how's your day? It's fine. Anything, you know, especially nothing. Why are you always on my case? Why don't you just leave me alone? This is how my daughter would talk to my wife. So then I see this, and so Jessica's pushing, right? She's pushing, and everything in me, there's no way, how dare you speak to your mother that way, right? That's what, I mean, right away, I'm going to push back, and I'll push harder. I'm bigger, I'm larger, <laughs> and I'm going to win this sucker, and I'm going to push back until you, right? This is what's going on in my head. I'm anxious. And again, I took my course. So about a, uh, about a, a week into my, uh, to my daughter behaving this way, pushing hard, really upset, crying all the time, up in her room alone, angry. Uh, one day she comes back from school, same sullen Jessica, and she's not like that. She's just a really fun, fun girl. I take her by the hand, walk in the living room. I sit close to her. And I say, Jess, this is not you. What's going on? And uh, she's just sullen, just stone face. And then I see a tear come out of her eye. And she says, Dad, they're bullying me at school. I go, oh, Jess, I'm so sorry. What's going on? She says, we'll play volleyball, and, uh, and I'll miss the ball. And they'll give me, this one particular girl gives me the slow clap, you know. And my blood at this point is just boiling. Just let me see that girl just for a second. <laughs> like I'm just, <clears throat> but this girl that was bullying her was a girl that she had led to Christ the year before. And she says, uh, she says, Elena, uh, she doesn't, instantly she bursts into tears. And she says, and Elena doesn't want to be a Christian anymore. And she says that she wants to go to hell now. And she just starts bawling. I go, oh, Jess, this is horrible. I am so sorry. This sucks. And I just, I just put my arms around her and care for her and pray with her. And then I say, uh, uh, so we just have a moment, and then she feels better, and she kind of, you know, cleans herself up a little bit. And I go, do you want me to tell you how to deal with bullies? She says, yeah, that'd help. And I say, uh, here's, this is off the topic, but I'm just telling you real fast because if your parents might help. I, uh, I say, uh, if they say that you're an idiot, then you say, I am not. I'm a stupid idiot. And the bullies have no idea what to do with that. <laughs> you just go worse. Just go worse. Whatever they, just go worse. And so I, she actually, she, I, so I asked her, I go, uh, a week later, I go, how's gym class going? She goes, oh, it's going great. I go, why? Well, she says, uh, she says every time I miss, I miss the ball now, I bow. <laughs> she says, they don't know what to do with that. And I do this. 
Isn't that great? She's free. But then I say, but then I say, uh, but Jess, you know you can't meet, uh, treat your mom like that. You know that, right? She goes, yeah, I know. I can't do that. She's, so I says, here's what, here's what I want you to do. And I know what she's like. I know that she loves planning things. So I says, here's what I want you to do is go away. Don't tell me now. Go away and think about how you could express that you're sorry to your mom. Well, she comes back five minutes later, super excited. And she says, uh, she says Dad, I know what, I know what I'm going to do. Uh, the year before, uh, I was teaching in uh, Hawaii, tough game, and uh, I had some air mile points, and I was able to take uh, Debbie, my wife, and Jessica, just the two of them, away with me, and then they would play on the beach while I'm teaching, and then we could have time. It was so fun. And when you have so many kids, she's just for Jessica, just to be with Mom and I was a really, really big deal. She had so much fun, and we spoiled her. She was swimming with dolphins and all kinds of stuff. We spent way too much money. And, uh, and she says, Dad, I know, I know what we're gonna, I, I, I want to do. I want to create a Hawaiian breakfast for Mom. And I just want to show her how much I love her. And so, uh, so she had a little mermaid music. That's the closest she could get to Hawaiian music. And then uh, we had little, uh, little uh, Jonah, our youngest one. He was the bartender, and he had two coconut shells. <laughs> and, uh, and she made Hawaiian pancakes. I don't even know what that is. And uh, she just put on a huge spread, had all the kids stood up and said something nice about their mom. And then she organized this whole thing. Mom had to come down blindfolded. Now, if I would have pushed, would she have ever expressed that level of repentance? Right? Never would have happened. You go and apologize to your mother right now. She'd do that. He goes, sorry. But if... If when she pushes, let's do it again. If when she pushes, we come close and we talk and we pray and we find Jesus together. In that place, she's able to be a new person because I'm a different person that she's reacting against. I'm not anxious and afraid that she's a rebellious teenager and that she's going to go down the, the road of, you know, I see and if you saw our neighborhood, it's a rough neighborhood. If I'm not anxious, I'm a different person for her to react against. I'm the non-anxious presence in that moment. I can tell you lots of other times when I screwed up, but that was just a happy story. Are we doing still okay? So what this is then, this is about being self-aware, and it's learning how to take our pulse. Remember yesterday we said that in anxiety, all we're doing is surviving a moment. We actually don't think and we can't feel. Uh, we're just reacting and surviving. What being the non-anxious presence requires is being self-aware and what I term learning how to take my pulse. So I'm in a stressful situation. My life has lots of stressful situations. I can t like uh, last Tuesday, I remember uh, dealing with a leadership crisis, uh, meeting with a Muslim professor of philosophy then dealing with the kid who ran away, and then dealing with somebody else who was going through a marriage. That's just you know, one day. I remember that day. I have lots and lots of stress. And so what I need to do in that moment is I need to do this. Look at me. I need to do this. I take my pulse. And I go, what's motivating me right now, fear or faith? In this moment, what's motivating me? Do I need to be the rock star pastor right now? Do I need to have all the clever answers? 
or do I just need to be present and care and be the non-anxious presence and react to their problem in a way that's different than how they react to their problem? And so I take my pulse, I quiet my heart, and I come before my father, and I want to be responsive to him instead of reactive to others. And so I say, Father, in this moment, I'm afraid. And my anxiety is usually about my performance or about them. And so I, I turn toward my first relationship, my first love, which is Jesus. And say, Jesus, I don't want to be reacting against others. I want to be responsive to you. What are you doing in this moment? Where are you in this moment? And I, and I let myself be, put my first relationship first and think about him first. And when I see him, my blood rate, you know, my blood pressure goes down, my heart rate goes down, and I'm able to see him in the moment, and I'm free. I'm free. But what we need to do is learn to take our pulse and to tell the difference between what anxiety feels like and what faith feels like. And I'll tell you, it took me years to learn how to take my pulse. Here's what's really disturbing, is what I often thought was faith was really my anxiety. Anxiety was, let's be strong, let's believe God right now. Will you be, let's believe him together. Now that can, be, that can be faith. I'm not saying that's always not faith. But for me, that was overcompensating because I was freaked out to actually come close and care for somebody in a moment. So I just preached faith. It was a way to stay distant, to look godly, but to actually not truly care. That was just me. So we uh, learn how to take our pulse. We stop and think and ask what faith and love look like in that moment. And typically, it's just about resting in the presence of our Father. That's typically what it is for me. So here's what goes on in my mind when I'm in a stressful situation. Every single time. Pretty much every time. Uh, coming here is how I felt. Uh, I'm not good enough. That's the first thing that goes through my mind. And uh, they need a professional, and I ain't one. That's what goes through my mind every time. And so, because people tell me really hard things, really complicated things. You don't come and see me unless it's already complicated, right? <laughs> and so it's already complicated. And then as they're listening to me, I do this. I go, oh, God, this is hard. Oh, it's worse yet. <laughs> and I'm worse yet. And I keep getting smaller and smaller inside as I'm listening to people's problems. And so here's what I think inside every time. I think, uh, I think well, I can't be a rock star but I can be present and peaceful. I can be a better person for you to react against. And so I choose to love them and to sit with Jesus with them. And then now I'm peaceful. And in that place of peace, I sometimes get a prophetic word or I get a scripture verse or I get a funny comment that just helps them kick out of their place that they're, or whatever it is. And now I'm living in, because I'm always relational, but now I'm living in response to God instead of in reaction to their issues. I become a new person, and now they can solve their own problems because the real issue was not the issue. It was their anxiety about the issue. 
And so when I'm not anxious, and they look at me like, you should be freaking out right now because I am, and I'm not anxious, then they go, well, maybe I shouldn't be anxious. And as soon as their anxiety goes down, now they can listen to the Holy Spirit, and now God's the hero of the story instead of me being the rock star pastor. You follow me on this? And now everybody's happy. I go home happy because I don't have all the stupid pressure. They go home happy because they encounter Jesus and not just my advice. And the whole thing has changed because we're aware of whether we're operating out of anxiety or faith. Invite Jesus into the moment. Let's both be responsive to him. And now everything changes. So self-control, which the Bible talks a lot about. I never understood what that meant. I thought it, was, it just meant gritting my teeth. <laughs> that's what self-control, I thought that's what self-control looked like. I'm being self-controlled. Don't bug me. I'm being self-controlled. Um, self-control is actually responding to God instead of reacting to others, reacting to their pain or their expectations. I wanted to, uh, I was debating over to do this because this is all vulnerable for me, but my son sends me a, a text last night. I'm going to try not to cry. I'm not a crier, but this one got me. He goes, hey, Dad. Just thought I'd, I'd text you before I left. He's gone off to camp. Uh, Mom says it's been a bit of a fight for you this trip. For what it's worth, I think anywhere in the world is blessed to have you. Yes, because you're good at what you do. But more importantly, you let God use you just as you are like no one else I know. I think sometimes you get insecure for not being more whatever. But the fact that you continue to be obedient in your weakness is what makes you a great leader, father, and friend. No one needs you to be someone else, including your family. I'm so grateful to serve along. <clears throat> it is so freeing to walk in the presence of Jesus. There's life and freedom in that place. And when we see him, we don't have to be something more or else or different. We just get to be who Christ has called us to be and walk in that life and freedom, to be the non-anxious presence. You guys, I told you, you know, I'm an insecure kid. I don't understand masculinity growing up. I was the youngest child, so I have no experience of how to be a father, and I get 10 of them. You know, I, you know how I used to hold a baby? Like this. That's how I held a baby. Not like this, like this. Because I didn't want them to put anything on me. <laughs> you know, whatever, wherever it come out of. I mean, I'm just insecure. And uh, I'll tell my kids all the time, I don't think I'm the best dad, I'm just your dad. So let's figure this out together. And I do it with a smile on my face. And I'm pretty sure you're not the best kid either, just for the record. <laughs> <clears throat> but you're my kid. And so why don't we figure this out together? I'm not the hero. And we just figure it out together. And my kids know who I am. And they're okay with that. And I know who they are. And I'm okay with that. I'm not anxious. And we have 10 children who have fetal alcohol syndrome and, you know, from uh, the, I could tell you stories, which I won't, of what they went through. It is horrific. I'm sure you guys have stories too. It's horrific. 
and they love Jesus, all, all 10 of them. And I'm praying, Father, don't let me lose one of them. Not one, not one. I don't, I'm not fighting for 90%. I want 100% of my kids following Jesus Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. One of these kids stole our van. I was the effing white man. That's what we started with. And now she comes and she says, you're the father that I never had. And before that, nobody had cussed me out more in my life than that girl. <laughs> but if I'm anxious, nobody ever speaks to me that may. And I'm even a pastor, <laughs> whatever stupid thing I might say. You know, it's just anxiety. It's just anxiety. But if I'm not anxious, I can hear the Spirit of God be defined by him and now I'm a better person to react off of. Isn't that cool? Oh, man, man. So we are peaceful and present. Back to the notes. We are peaceful and present, courageous and cooperative, instead of demand and distance. Do you see how peaceful is the opposite of demand and present is the opposite of distant? So that little story that I tell you yesterday about going downstairs where all the, the family's in chaos, I am present, but I'm peaceful. My issue, I'm pretty good at being peaceful. It's hard for me to be present. I'd just rather be away. But I have to fully engage my heart in the moment. Fully engage my heart. When, when, when somebody in our church, you know, their kid runs away, I am over there. I am, I'm not just giving counsel over the phone and giving them a Bible verse. I am present and I'm peaceful. And when I'm peaceful, they look at me and they go, why aren't you freaking out? It must be about Jesus because you're, you know, you're a Christian. So I guess this is about Jesus. Never thought that it was about Jesus. I just thought I was losing my kid. So Jesus, what are you doing? And then they begin to see the situation through his eyes. And I'm not being clever at all. I don't have any great advice. I'm just believing that God is alive, in charge, and super loving. That's all I'm doing. <clears throat> so leaders then set the room temperature. We don't fear tension. In fact, we bring tension into moments, but respond in non-anxious ways. Leaders set the room temperature. The leader of the room is the one who is the least anxious in any given moment. Now, I don't know anything about basketball. Last time I watched basketball was Michael Jordan, all right? And so I know you guys are into basketball. I don't get it. Hockey's better. <laughs> I just, I just wanted to hear that ooh. That was worth it right there. Um, and so just imagine, just imagine Michael Jordan, because it's all I got, all right? And I barely know anything about basketball. So and there's always, I don't know why you play for an hour, because the last minute is all that really matters, as far as I can tell. So you got, so, so it's the last minute, and then, uh, and then uh, Michael Jordan calls everybody in, right? And uh, he says, guys, this isn't going well. Uh, you know, you haven't hit a three-pointer all game. And uh, what did you play with Scottie Pippen? And you're just, I don't know what it is with you, but you, you, you lost it. And I have this stomach thing. I don't know. I'm not, it's not good. 
And uh, have you noticed how big the other team is? They are large people. And I think they want it, you know, more than us. I don't, I don't know if this is going to go well. Can you imagine a huddle like that? <laughs> All right, let's break. <laughs> you know, can you imagine a huddle like that? Why is, why is Michael Jordan, what is he doing? What is he going to do in that moment? He's going to be the non-anxious presence. He's going to say, everyone, come in. We got this. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. Are you ready? Are we in? And we're in. He's the non-anxious presence. Now, I know it's mostly going to be about him, and that's the problem with <laughs> basketball, right? But uh, sorry, it just keeps coming out. I don't know how to stop it. Um, but, the, uh, but the idea, do you get the idea? He's the non-anxious presence in that moment, and that's why he's not just the best player, he's the team leader. And the team leader is always the non-anxious presence. My job as a leader in my home, in my church, uh, in my vocation, with my friends, is to be the non-anxious presence wherever I go. And when I'm the non-anxious presence, I'm a minister of reconciliation, connecting people to God and to one another and transforming the world around me, simply because I'm managing my anxiety as I come before my Father and be defined by that relationship before any other relationship. And I think that's freedom. And I think that that's what Jesus is calling us into as men. So we even bring tension into the system. You know, I'll, uh, can I, are we doing okay? Okay, I just, 10 minutes, I'm pretty sure I can wrap up. Is that okay? Okay, so I uh, had this guy come and talk to me. Actually, it was uh, long distance counseling. And, uh, and he says, you know, he says, I just, I have been addicted to pornography ever since. And he says, I can't get over this thing. And so he says, I'm in a, an accountability group, but all we do in our group is just talk about how hard it is. And so I say, I'm a nice guy, right? And so I say, I say to this guy, I say, let me tell you what you're, ex what, what you're doing to your wife. What your pornography is like is your wife is in bed. You're having sex with a woman beside her. You roll off of her and onto your wife, and you say, be intimate with me. I say, I think that's disgusting. And it's no wonder your wife has left you. I would have, too. And I don't care how many times you're going to cry about how hard it is. Don't you dare tell me that Jesus Christ is smaller than pornography. You will never convince me of that. And I don't know why you're trying to convince yourself. And it's been over a year now. And he's never gone after decades of bondage to pornography. He's been clean now for a good year. Says Pastor Greg. Walking clean. I'm back together with my wife. She's in love with me again. And our relationship has never been better than it is right now. And I saw them. I was back in their city just a little while ago, and they're all touchy, lovey. But I'm just listening to the Spirit of God. Sometimes he says, step it up a bit. Sometimes he says, just come close. I'm just trying to be responsive to Jesus in those moments. But something dramatic and powerful happens 
when we are uh, when we're not anxious. In relationships, then, people are shaped more by our self than by our solutions. People readjust to our non-anxious presence and respond in like kind. I think there is a pressure inside of men to provide solutions. I don't, I hate to break it to you, but your solutions ain't that great. Um, my, uh, my wife, she's a stay-at-home mom, and so she just knows way better everything that's going on. And so every once in a while, I feel like I should come up with something, <laughs> you know, like I should have an opinion about something. I think our kids should do this. And then she'll say, well, here's the 10 reasons why that won't work. And it's like, oh. And then I go back to, what would you like me to do next, honey? And I go back. I, she's always going to be better than me because, first of all, she's brilliant. And she's just so loving and caring. There's no way I can be better than any of that. Do you know why? Do you know what my role is in my family? Not to have the solutions but to be a place of peace for my wife to orient herself around. And when she's peaceful, she can be all that Jesus has enabled her to be. My job is to bring peace into our home. And then she functions just way better than I ever could. My kids become the rock stars that I always hoped they would be. And all I'm doing is managing my own anxiety and giving her a better person to react against. That's my job. That's a fun job. Everything in me wants to give three things that I think she should be doing. Everything in me. Because they're super good and they're from the Bible. She doesn't need any of those things. She's read the Bible herself. She knows exactly what she needed to do. But she needed to come to a calm place in order to make that choice. And I can help bring calmness to her heart by managing the own anxiety and mind. So here's the process in conclusion. We need to be present in faith we engage in difficult moments. Men are designed to go into difficult moments. That's why we sign up for war. We go into hard places. It's what we do. We go into hard places, and then we take our pulse, and we make choices based on our identity in Christ, not in the, to the stress that's whirling around us. And then we love peacefully. We go into the hard places, whether that's talking with your neighbor, uh, being intimate with your wife, taking your kid out, we call them daddy dates, going out with your kid, wherever it is, you, you, you engage, you engage, you do not withdraw, you engage. And then you take your pulse and you're first, you identify yourself with Christ first and then you're able to love peacefully. And I pray it doesn't get any more complicated than that. In uh, Jesus' most common command is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. Do not be afraid. It is the issue. There is no such thing as moving on. We naturally repeat the past unless we put in the energy to become self-aware and choose faith-based responses. Become self-aware and choose faith instead of fear. I give you some signs of being the non-anxious presence. We don't need to go through those, but just to paint a picture. And so in closing, let me ask you, what does your anxiety produce in others? Here's, uh, here's step one in identifying our own anxiety, is that people are pushing against us. When I took my pulse, I couldn't tell the difference between fear and faith. I really couldn't. I just was unaware. 
But the first way that I began to see that I was operating in anxiety was to see the responses of people around me. That was my first step. And I go, you're freaking out right now. Why are you freaking out? Oh, maybe I'm freaking out. I just didn't know I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out in that, whoa, chill, freaking out. It's going to be fine, freaking out. And then they keep, since I'm under-functioning, they keep over-functioning more, and I keep trying to get even less under-functioning so that they'll get the you know, sign that they're over-functioning. And I didn't realize that it was all anxiety. So I looked in them first. So what does anxiety... Uh, what does anxiety produce? What does your anxiety produce in others? If you're married and your wife, those at work about your Christianity, do they sense that Christianity is an anxious place for you? Or is it a good news place for you? What is God inviting you to believe about him, you, or others in those moments? And that's all that's ever going on. So you go, oh, sick, I'm being anxious again. I can see it in them. I can now begin to feel it in myself. Father, what are you doing in this moment? And then things dramatically change because of that. Uh, Pastor Morgan's going to invite us into a, into a moment where we get to kind of work this through in a practical way. And uh, can I just pray for us and then hand it over to you? Father, I thank you that... Entering into our calling and being the men that you've designed us to be is not about some self-improvement program that we're never going to succeed at. I thank you that all that's in the way is a simple anxiety that you have died to free us from. And as we walk in the peace of Christ... We then walk in our destiny. So I ask for my friends here that you would bring self-awareness into our lives. That you would help us slow down moments and take our pulse. Oh, Father, give us the grace to be able to see ourselves in honesty. And then, Father, in those places, would you save us? Save us with your presence. Save us with your forgiveness. Save us with your empowering. Save us with you. Because you are our hope and our salvation. And it's you that we want to be defined by. Not our circumstances. Not even our own emotions. We want to be defined by you. It's what we sung about earlier this morning. And it's what we do believe to be our salvation is you. And so I ask on behalf of my friends, that you would give us the grace to choose you in stressful places and be defined by that relationship first. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you that it's so accessible to us. In Jesus' name.